You're listening to B2B Revenue Acceleration, a podcast dedicated to helping software executives stay on the cutting edge of sales and marketing in their industry. Let's get into the show. This podcast is sponsored by Gong. Gong empowers your entire go-to-market organization by operationalizing your most valuable asset, your customer interactions. Transform your organization into a revenue machine by unlocking reality and helping your people reach their full potential. Get started now at gong.io. Hi, welcome to B2B Revenue Acceleration. My name is Aurélien Mottier, and I'm here today with Didi Dayton, Head of Platform and Community at True Search. Didi, it's not your first time on the podcast. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. That's an absolute pleasure. So today we'll be speaking about uh, the impact of the economic downturn on the tech industry. But before we get going, uh, could you just give us a little bit little bit of background about yourself? Who are you, Didi? And, uh, and also the, the company that you represent through such, and also potentially some of the other things that you are doing on the side, because I know that you are involved in a couple of great uh, uh, side little assholes there. Yeah, thank you so much. I am... Didi Dayton, I have been in the cybersecurity industry for over 25 years as an operator. And then three years ago, I shifted to venture and was business development partner for Wing Venture Capital. And then I recently joined True Search. And I also joined a company called Jupiter One, which is a cybersecurity startup focused on cloud security. So my role at True Search allows me to interface with some of the world visionaries and leaders. Uh, I run community, which means that we're basically adding value between searches. And that's across our clients, which are largely VCPE and large enterprise, and then also um, with our candidates. So I would do workshops, roundtables, help them get ready for their board seats, help them find them, you know, find great CEOs and great C leaders, C-level leaders for uh, startups through large enterprise alike. Cool. So using all those connections and putting to good use, basically. Yeah. And I have an opportunity to work with the best minds in the industry. So uh, it's a real privilege. Good. Well, let's dive into it. So not so long ago, I think we, we, we've we seen, particularly in the cybersecurity world, where you've got a lot of uh, a lot of experience, um, valuation going, well, some people will call it crazy. Some people will call it just fair, high. But um I think the the there was lots of uh, of tailwind into into the market and lots of people getting great traction. As I said, the valuation going up. We saw some big, big, big funding going into the the cybersecurity market in particular, but not just cybersecurity in the tech space in general. Coming from from the VC world, uh, you've obviously seen all that happening. But I'd like to get your thoughts on how severe you think the the situation, the economic downturn is actually going to be, uh, and, and how much do you think of it is a real impact versus, uh, you know, kind of a fear potentially from, from the market? Yeah, it's an important question because the if you read the headline news, news it sounds like everything's terrible. Um, and I think the highlights of the IT market overview are, are that the underlying economic fundamentals are still, are still strong. So, you know, you've got employment data that I think last week there were 315,000 jobs created. There are over 5 million jobs open today. And so the job market is a really good leading indicator um, as to where, you know, the, the spend is going and, and that there's still continuing to be investment. And I think businesses are still continuing to protect their 
IT budgets. You know, there's a lot of willingness to um, spend, you know, the, the prices are what are really governing a lot of this fear because prices are so, you know, volatile by industry. And so where there are market economic indicators that are down, they're largely in sectors where the pricing is really fluctuating. Um, but from some of the sources, and I, you know, I pulled together some, some things for today, um, the sources basically indicate that September and October are going to be tur turbulent. Um, but most budgets are supposed to stay flat or even slightly increase, and so that's good. There's an ambiguous environment for sure, specifically in consumer markets. And then there's signs of weakness for the first half of the year, but that's not necessarily an indicator for you know the final end. Um, and consumer IT spending is down, but you, I know you're going to ask me which sectors are doing well. Yes. Uh, the answer to that is ad tech, gaming, observability, and SaaS security software. So security should be preserved. Yeah, we have a mixed feedback. We've got some clients who have recently raised money and they are happy as everything. We've got some clients who are probably struggling a little bit more and, and they could still raise money, but not on the value they were expecting, which means that they would have to give more equity for the same amount of money. Um, we've got some clients who are, they, they still have some runway from their previous investment, but I guess they are being a little bit more careful. So they are still recruiting, but they may not be going at 3x, they may only be going at 2x in terms of how quickly they are, they are going to, to, to push out. From your perspective, do, do you see do you see the, really the valuation going down as time goes by? Do you see that it would be more difficult to get VC money uh, and get funding for, for companies that can't survive from their cash flow? Do you think they would have a, a tough winter in 23? There's a lot more, um, I would say, scrutiny on any investment. And investing has really shifted the focus from it being, you know, sort of a, an open high valuation market to much more of a cautious and, and very um, explicit, you know, return. The SaaS market has been completely reevaluated, for example. And a lot of those valuations that were overinflated are just coming back down to what I think is a more reasonable market level. Um, it's no question that the recession is real in the sense that companies are seeing layoffs. But on the other hand, there a lot of what tech is, is doing is sheltered from that recession. A lot of it is in the housing market and some of these other, you know, areas that that are largely not in in the core technology focus. So I mean B2B is affected, but I wouldn't say as much as you know some of these other you know B2C businesses. Um, in terms of where the cuts are happening, um, that's largely in SGNA. That's you know where the, the first cuts is especially for early stage companies, right? The consumer focused companies are much more um, they're much more centered around operations and SGNA. But when you're looking at businesses that are building and, and getting out to market, they have very strong sales. The indicators there are very strong in engineering. So both of those functions are, you know, in, in really good shape. Um, yeah. I recently did a, a podcast um, with uh, Carta. So they do, uh, if you're familiar, they basically manage all the equity behind the scenes for a lot of these companies. And they had a fantastic report out there called the state of uh, startup compensation. Okay. And uh, the key uh, takeaways from that were remote hiring is soaring. Um, 
last or in 2019 it was about 35 percent of new hires uh this this year so far it's 62 percent wow okay and geo adjusting is absolutely the norm um engineering is a key hire and it accounts for nearly half of payroll spent in companies valued between one and ten million and then there are some terminations on the rise um but overall i mean the the sales function sales salaries are still growing which is a, a nice thing to see. There's a lot of stability in terms of uh, the packaging. So, you know, the question that we get a lot is, well, what is, what is the trend? Is it more for cash? Is it more for equity? Are there bonuses still out there? And, and what's happened in the, re- in the recent few weeks even is that it shifted from a candidate's market to a company's market. Okay. So as a result of that, you're seeing some of those bonuses dry up not to say that there isn't still a need for specialized skill sets. It's just that the surging demand where candidates were seeing five, six offers at a time, and they could really dictate, you know, the terms of their package that's shifted. Um, and so companies would rather wait, for example, uh, ServiceNow and, you know, uh, Netflix and some of these other organizations would rather wait and let you know employees who are negotiating get their final commission package before you know making them an offer to join rather than giving them a bonus, for example. Yeah, that makes sense. But I think you know the, the we speak about valuation going a little bit crazy in the space. I think the salaries have been also going a little bit crazy in the space. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess my question for you, because based on your role and, and what you are doing at TrueSearch, do you really see a lot of company releasing the real talents? Because I would have thought that if you've got a fantastic engineer, if you've got a fantastic salesperson, if you've got a fantastic marketing person, even if the, the, the times are tough, you probably would try to hold on those people and you know try to develop them. Of course, they may not be happy anymore in your organization or they may not see the future, so they may decide to leave by themselves. But do you think that uh, you really can get talent from what we call the big layoff or, or or is it just people that may be more, I don't know what the right term would be, but I would say normal or average that, that are actually available on the market right now. Yeah, there's, there's two ways to look at that. One is, you know, salaries. Those are an, a key indicator as to, you know, retention and uh, the median salary are still rising. So that's good news. Um, in, in sales, you know, overall it's about 15%. So, I mean, year over year, and in terms of productivity, that's also increased, right? And that's led to a lot of this uh, interest in retaining the the right talent. It's so much more expensive to try to find someone new. It's about 15 grand on average to hire someone new rather than retaining an employee. Um, And that's, you know, across the board in terms of function and and level. Uh, When you're looking at the higher ranks, it's even more expensive. So um, in terms of the companies that are seeing the most stability and the most interest in retaining their employees, those are the ones that are around 500 million in valuation. So probably companies who are a little bit more stable, potentially have their own, you know, cash flow that could support the the, the salary bill versus relying on in, sure. on the next investment, which right. is which is a little bit more of a precarious situation to be in. You know, you get more stock, but you don't know stock of what if you if you're in that sense, it may be better to to bag your salary right now. That makes That's sense. And, and the other thing that was interesting to hear was that Carta is also seeing a lot of difference in terms of the vesting period and the vesting yep. schedule. So what used to be a longer vesting schedule is now much more variable. 
particularly because there's a lot more fractional leadership out there. So you have leaders that, you know, will take on a project or where for a startup, they need a CFO. That may not be a full-time job. And they may also not have the cash at hand to do that. So there's two things that they're doing. One is they're bringing in fractional leadership. The other is they're relying more on technology and they're relying more on partnerships. So those are allowing them to advance the business pretty quickly without having to, you know, make the long-term investment. It allows them a lot more flexibility. And I would like to go back on something you mentioned earlier. You, you, you got some stats. I can't really recall exactly the number, but I think it was from 30-something percent to 60-something percent of people being recruited remote. So, so obviously, there is lots of reshaping, and, 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 and we know where the big uh, um, little ecosystem would be in the U.S. You've got the Bay Area. You've got, you know, obviously, New York, Boston, et cetera, et cetera. So people are probably going further or away from those big, um, metropole to 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 get a bit more of a better lifestyle, and it may be a wide open question, but how, how do you see the effectiveness of of distributed team um, working? Because I believe it's okay when it's a few people, but when it's a full team of I don't know, let's say you've got a full team of 150 people, fully 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 remote, do you okay. see that being as effective as a team that would be? Maybe not everybody will be in the office every day because I don't think it's possible. From a culture perspective, from a retention perspective, do you think that would lead to less loyalty from employees, being more opportunistic because they don't really experience the the, the life within the company as such since they are fully remote? Yeah, and there's been a lot of debate about that, right? In terms, there's a lot of controversy also around organizations that are pushing their employees to go back to work. Um, so there are a couple things. Let's let's start from the beginning. So you mentioned new cities. Absolutely, there are new two-tier cities uh, that were surprising in terms of you know their movement forward. Um, the core top you know tier one cities are still New York, San Francisco, San Jose, and Seattle. But yeah. what's emerging is that you know Washington, Boston, Portland, Boulder. Um, Austin and Miami are really strong performers. In terms of East to West Coast in the United States, um, the West is still seeing higher inter- higher um, salaries in terms of tech pay. So um, that's an interesting sort of dynamic that's evolving is that uh, while people are being geo-adjusted, on the other hand, you're still seeing, you know, the higher salaries being commanded out of the West. Yeah. Uh, in terms of you know, Miami as a sort of tech hub, that's another interesting micro dynamic that's that started. And I, I can't blame people who wouldn't want to sit, you know, by the beach and then, you know, go home and work in their condo and, you know, get a lot of great technology stuff done. Um, so that is uh, the compensation for tech is is an, as a blip a little bit higher in Miami. Uh, but in terms of remote workers effectiveness, there were so many productivity and collaboration tools that emerged in the last few years. I think it's worth exploring, you know, some of the rise in productivity as part of that dynamic. Um, but it's very functionally dependent, meaning you may have previously seen a lot of SDRs that yep. were in um, a bullpen where they were able to get that energy and dynamism going, but then they had to go home and it was a lot harder for them to stay up to speed on the script and to keep that energy level high. That said, I think there are also those who are who have adapted and are much yeah. better at absorbing information and having really deep conversations and meaningful conversations rather than just the sort of touch and go, you know, and also customers because they're home, they're not spending the time commuting, they're much more accessible. 
And they are willing if you tell them something that is meaningful to them and has really tangible outcomes, the, the volume and the value of you know indirect selling and direct selling has gotten so much better. I don't yeah. know if you've seen that. I mean, the tools are better, the messaging is better, targeting the customer is better, the persona, understanding, well, I don't really care about that. I you, you don't really need to tell me about it because it's not my role. All right. So much more targeted. And you can do that because now you can actually track where the person is on LinkedIn and then what industry they're in and then target a message specifically for them. I would agree with you regarding the our take on DSDR BDR because we, we do a lot of that. It's about the first job that you got working from home. Yeah. Uh, for me, I'm much more productive when I'm at home. Uh, you would have put me at home when I was 25 and I had a PlayStation laying around and some other stuff. And, you know, you, you, you've got distraction. And, and, and I think it took a little bit of adaptation. Uh, yeah. And also one of the biggest issues that we had, that we had people that literally did not have an office to work from. You know, because if you walk in, uh, in in one of those big cities, and we had lots of our guys who are in Dallas, but even in Dallas, you know, to afford a, a two or three bedroom flat um, where you have actually a room where you can walk from and not a room that you are sharing with your other half with also doing some stuff because it's, it's, it becomes a little bit difficult. So getting the, getting the space to walk, so having the setup and then kind of getting to the right a bit has been taking a little bit of time. I think people have now developed tactics and they are much better at doing it and it gives them a flexibility that I think is, is kind of required. Um, but what I think is great for us and for our industry is that we have the opportunity to recruit people who are more experienced. However, we still, for our SDRBT, no matter what we do, we really struggle to train people in distance. So if you've got someone who is completely blue, wants to start first job out of university. The, the online training is one thing, but we really see a much better um, enthusiasm, results, enjoyment when they actually can share something in the office. And I think it's fair, you know, I mean, if you think about it, I mean, I don't want to sound too old school, but for me, the office was part of my life. It's mm -hmm. like going to school, you make new friends, you may even find a, a girlfriend, boyfriend, you know, romantic relationship, but you have a bit of fun, you go for a beer after work or whatever, dinner, you've got that things going on. It's a social activity and I believe we're social animals and, and, and I could not, I still would struggle to picture myself as a 25 year old where you don't really know what the next task, task is being at home um, because I think I would not trust me. <laughs> um, Having said that, as you said, we've got technology now. So you can have technology where people don't have to think. The next, the next task is lined up for them, is, is serving a platter. But then I think you're kind of losing a little bit the freedom of, um, of, um, of, of the way the work should be and having this conversation and the learning. And one thing that is great is when you are in the office, which I think is we see some people now struggling and it's kind of interesting because we've got pods of people in the US and pods of people in the UK. So for example, in the UK, right, I had a conversation today. We have around 20, 30 people around the Manchester area. And they are putting a business case together. So we open an office in Manchester. And these are all people that we, re we, we recruited because they're requested to be a remote. That's right. But now there is a little group. They kind of meet each other. They kind of socialize. They kind of like each other. 
Another thing we want in office to get together and we will increase productivity and all that sort of stuff and people can come and we can train. So it's kind of going almost 360. But really what I want to take my next question is about the sales leader. So I know that's the, the type of people that you are um, searching for and, and helping your, your, your clients' company to bring would be sales leaders or CEOs or all sorts of you know, people who've got with big target above their head. What's the main um, advice that you would give to revenue leaders in, in, in growing revenue in this uncertain economic time or climate? Two things. One, I would adjust your compensation strategy according to new roles. And yeah. I would make room for technology as a second. Okay. So there are fantastic new solutions out there that allow you to do things like in marketing, you can do cookie lists, you can do flywheels, you can build customer loyalty without bombarding them. You can find ways of being very sensitized to the demands of the market and also creating demand without then also creating an overhead from yeah. you know the customer experience perspective. So there are a lot of fantastic new tools out there for outreach, for funnel management, for you know sales compensation. It's it's an AI-based world now. So the alignment with the internal business partners, right, in terms of looking at the business, and I, I learned this from the PayPal team after they integrated Braintree, um, and Jordy Brazier uh, was the one that really made this clear. He said, we re-looked at the customer journey from the vantage point of the outside end view first. So when we re-architected post-merger and integration, we looked at what their experience is from the minute they hit our website or call us all the way through all the different stages of onboarding and customer experience. And what they found was that there were so many inefficiencies from the customer vantage point that were being protected from the internal perspective because teams had built out these processes and workflows in ways that they thought the customer needed. But when they actually examined the customer experience, they were able to make an argument in favor of moving forward. And so for a large enterprise, that's always an issue, right? Because you have existing belief systems, you have existing infrastructure, and it's very difficult to make changes because there's so much investment in that area. So getting organizations to transform, getting new organizations built, a lot of that is, is based on focusing, really, really focusing, and that's where product-led growth comes from, is on the customer experience and customer adoption. Yeah. And also, I would say shifting from lagging indicators, which are typically board-level indicators, and that's what drives the business, which are typically market you know, direction, market signals, now moving to more leading indicators that show things like how much time do they spend on your platform and how many users have you know, downloaded versus signed up for different services? What are the integrations with other solutions? You know, Some of these newer leading indicators that give you a sense of where your customer head is going, right? Yeah. So using solutions, I mean, I supported Gong for a long time. They were able to give market signals on the basis of conversations. So you know, recorded conversations with customers would then give you an aggregate view of how often does your competition come up? You know, if, if you're building a strategy for a takeout program for a competitor that only comes up in three to 5% of your conversations, meanwhile, you've completely missed the boat on this other one that comes up 20% of the time from yeah. the customer, that is a, a really valuable indicator that allows you to make, you know, data-driven decisions. Yeah. So, you know, data decision sets, and then also staying close to your team, it's very tempting to focus on your low performers. Yeah. Rather than giving your high performers the reassurance and the validation and the support that they need, 
when they're also experiencing a lot of challenges? And, and how do you keep those top performers always, you know, in that state of, you know, excitement and forward movement? It does ring the bell a lot because I was I was in the car this morning driving to the office and I listened to um, a podcast from Revenue Builders. I don't know if you know that uh, that channel. And he was with Mark Roberts, was the CRO and oh, the sales guy. He's amazing. Yeah. Wow. Well, yeah, he's pretty good. And 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 speaking about data driven approach, he, he he was he's talking at some points about quality of revenue and you know after a certain threshold that that customer will stay with you forever. And for them, it was how many products would they use, how many functionality they use. But they were speaking about Slack, and I think it was, you know, they need to send 2,000 messages per month over the first three months. And then you know that when you've got that, you've got a good customer. If not, you may not have set the right expectation in the sales process, so kind of the quality of revenue and this indicator. And it's 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 quite incredible what you can get from platform from like Gong um, when when you use them effectively. It's about having the team that can use them effectively and getting all those reports, but you're right. But fighting the right priorities and putting your energy in the right space. But from a quota perspective, do you, do you see companies adapting their quota? Um, do you see them reducing them, increasing them, carrying on as normal? Yes, they have gone down. Although there is right sizing that's happening now much more on a quarterly basis. So what you're seeing is companies are being much more focused on, you know, customer indicators. Um, and while they want to make sure that sales knows what they're going to make at the end of the day, they also have to curtail. And, and so the options are, neither one is really great, right? You either have to lay people off to stay on plan, or you have to adapt the quotas in such a way that you know, when, when the business gets going again, that you ramp things up. And I think, you know, in startup, that's a lot easier to do than in larger enterprise where, you know, you, you have established structure and systems. The other thing that we're seeing a lot, and, and this came from the Mayfield uh, CIO report, um, they were talking about how there's a lot of uh, quid pro quo deals going down. So everyone is dealing with everyone. So, you know, cloud providers are negotiating with, you know, enablers or, or you know, technology enables and systems integrators, but there's a lot more margin pressure. And so what that leads to is rationalization and um, growing at all costs is dead for now. Um, the other thing that's interesting is they're renegotiating with their cloud providers because there was this unfettered period where everyone was moving to the cloud and it was so exciting. Yay, automation, services, everything's phenomenal. Data sits there and you get really great insights. On the other hand, there was also not a lot of clear alignment on spend versus you know, the business and, and the operating needs that they had. So that renegotiating, I think, has, has generated a whole new um, wave of startup focused you know opportunities and and pricing packages that are much more geared towards consumption based usage right yeah. so allowing customers the flexibility to upscale and downscale their um, pricing that it doesn't necessarily lead to churn what it leads to is shorter and more flexible contracting and that's a, a critical thing that you know companies like Zora are able to enable right um, we've used them in the past. And it's it's one of those things that will continue to to increase. I I anticipate. Yeah, so adapting a little bit and uh, trying to respond to the market, take take piece by piece. Yeah, we we yeah. what we see is um, we definitely see our clients being a little bit more ROI focused. It's always the same stuff, you know. It, the same happened with COVID nineteen. So when when COVID hit, 
March to August, not much happened, but from September onward, everybody was looking at the budget for the following year. And people were still spending, no problem, but they wanted return, they wanted proof, they wanted uh they, they were they wanted to be much closer to getting money back from their investment and, and relatively quickly as well. So it's so it's it's kind of uh, you always get into interesting conversation when you've got a client that's got average deal value of 500k sell cycles of 18 months but they want return in the next six months you're like okay it's gonna be interesting but i guess but that's where you have to agree on new metrics right yes and that's what you've and, got to set the expectation you know again it's, yeah. it's coming back to mark Robert and the podcast i was mentioning if you want to ensure quality of revenue it's probably better to say no to them because they yeah. will do somewhere else do something else that will fail that's and come right. back to you so 100%. it's it's a long it's 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 the marathon versus the sprint. But what we see, so we we I was also in the game in 2008, 2010 when when things got a little bit spicy for the the, the internet bubble, and, and I think we're seeing something slightly similar at the moment where we've got sales leader coming to us and saying, "Look, we're not going to stop, but we know it's going to be more difficult. We know that the the carpet will be pulled on few deals last minute, and mm-hmm. Because we have, there will be some budget freeze, and we don't know what happened. But you know, some industry will be more impacted than other, and we may think that we've got a deal where at eighty percent we're about to close, and something happened, budget get taken away, and they, they they will be more surprised in an uncertain time. So their response is is basically to technically turn more of our services to say we need we wanted four x pipeline, we want six or seven now. So we need more pipeline to make. The numbers because we know that things won't happen we know that things will slip away so so that's kind of the two direction that we see um you mentioned a couple of solutions when when you you spoke about the the data driven insight for sales can you just come back on them very quickly because i, I could not quite I'll, I'll send you the details in the uh for as a, as a takeaway um but you're you're right in terms of companies being much more willing to embrace innovation and to try new things, right, that weren't possible before, but they brought in some organizations, you know, some of these banks brought, um, with the emergence of cloud, they were able to bring in new applications that are much more user-friendly and much more employee-friendly. So not only do they have the finger on the pulse of the market, but they're able to also respond to their market in real time, which they didn't used to be able to do, right? So um, definitely the top-down approach in terms of leadership, which you just so well described, is shifting from this sort of autocratic top-down, this is the way it should be, versus a much more you know, open and, and empathetic leadership is actually something that new hires are looking for. They're not interested in having their every second micromanaged. They're not interested in you know, leaders telling them that they have to live up to metrics that are unsustainable. Yeah. So there's this you know, new conversation flow that happens through technology between not only customers and businesses like product-led growth is a good example, but there was this massive insurgence of HR tech, marketing tech, sales tech that are now creating a conversation digitally. And so customers and employees are able to give their opinions, not only by leaving and coming back, like you so well articulated, but also by, you know, product by product, feature by feature, adoption that that are market signals and indicators of where things are going right yeah. the question is our business is listening 
And is that making its way up to the strategy? And so that leads back to what you were asking earlier about, you know, how well are companies adapting their compensation plans? How well are they adopting their business plans and their operating models so that they can become a new business model? And it takes time to make that shift, right? If you're going from, you know, a software to a SaaS model or even hardware, like many businesses like auto manufacturers, for example, they're now selling $18 heated car seats, BMW. So the question is, how do you rationalize all that into the business in a way that you allow for some of these new emerging trends while not also, you know, killing your relationship with your customer? Um, By the way, BMW should have done a little bit more market research and maybe uh, thought about that because I think that was a big turnoff. Yeah. And it's, it's, Coming back to your point about the business model, you, you, I think it's very important to put the priorities of, it's, it's always the case, but put the priorities of the prospect or the clients first. That's okay. Absolutely. So for example, I've, I've had a client calling me and they've been a client for a long time. My sponsor internally was great. They want to put a use case for a new um for a new program using operatics to push a new solution in a new market is completely new. So extremely high risk. There is no playbook. It's not, we're not going to the, the same ICP as before. They don't really have anyone internally doing it. And, and on top of that, they're cutting a lot of costs from a marketing perspective, from a sales perspective. They are freezing the eye of their own SDR, BDR team. And I've got two choices. I go with my normal business model where I say, yeah, we'll have a fixed contract for a period of time. And then, you know, we, we, we go rolling, or I could just say, okay, you, we're going to try to put a business case. Let's look at it, really understand if we can do it, if we can help, and if I'm convinced that we can do it and we can help, just come up with a very flexible model where technically they can go if it's, we can step out if it's not working. So giving them the flexibility instead of trying to get them into a contract, because we all want yeah. the same thing, which is give me predictable revenue forever. Yeah, yeah. Can I sign you for 10 years, please? Um, yeah, I, I think what people need right now is a little bit more of a Netflix model, you know, and and, and Netflix, which which is a SaaS model, they, the reason why they keep people is because their content is good. They deliver good stuff. So people- That's right, it's it. predictable. Right. But- the Predictability goes both ways, by the way. Yeah. So the predictability at Starbucks shifted when they went, for example, to an online purchasing model, right? And so when you go to a Starbucks store now, it's not a living room. It's not a third space. You know, you've got home, work, and Starbucks. Now what you have is it's mostly a to-go business. You happen to be standing there, right? So that shift, that digital shift happened in terms of the predictability, and it's a, and it affects that customer experience and that, that quality of service. So I love the way that you're rationalizing whether or not to take on a new client. And I think that that's a really important thing because no tactic survives alone right? You can have a business tactic that is remarkably effective as long as your strategy supports it. So what you see, and probably in your business, it's it comes very real, is that you have folks who want to get results quickly, and they want to bypass a lot of the strategic, you know, development and all of the other, you know, uh, supporting strategies that will make this a successful endeavor. But if you haven't gotten to product market fit and you're a series A company and you want to get leads, you can't just go and outsource that within, without also then having a marketing flywheel and without also having customers and without having a great message and technology. Awesome. It all works in symphony. 
Yeah, and trust me, we've had our finger burned because we uh, at Operatics, the first five years were very difficult. You know, we had to charm people to get yeah. business. We had to work really hard to get business from people. And then you have maybe 50, 60 sales marketing leaders that really like you because you've done something good for them. They may have had a promotion from your work or, you know, that right. company went IPO or they got another story of funding. And so you've got a good story with them. And then they go and speak with their friends. And their friend come to you, and when you are a salesperson that you know don't ask the right question, you may have someone who just throw themselves at you and say, "Okay, well you've worked for Diddy, and you've done a great job for her, so yeah, I want to work with you." And if you are just normal sales guy, say, "All right, send you the contract, and off we go." But you've not brought the friction in the process. You've not set the expectation in the process, and that's usually when things go wrong because right. people come to you thinking that you are a magician that you're going to get rabbits out of hats and stuff yeah. like that. And so, but we had our finger burned because that was the first time in five years that we actually got a good reputation and people, their phones start to ring and we, we were taking the orders. But now we're probably saying no to around 30 to 40% of our inbound. Not now, for, not no forever, but right. no for now. We're not right. ready or... The, the, the project doesn't make sense or you've got those targets, but the addressable market is that big. We're going to we're going to struggle to make ends meet. That's right. And, and then they put an issue come back. The, the other point that I wanted to make is that I looked at the data that we had from 2008, 2010. We we back then we changed. So we, we were another company uh, and we changed the business model to um, uh, what I would call like more of an ad hoc type of model where we don't really stuck our clients into contracts. We give them the freedom to come and go. And, you know, because we need the work, we need to keep the people. We want to protect jobs. So we, we need we need to find this project. That's actually when we had the best retention and the best lifetime value. Because you actually help people who are also struggling. And I think you, you psychologically, because there is not that automatic renewal coming in, from a, an operational perspective and a management perspective, you've got a whole team that's chasing that renewal or the next quarter of activity or the next month of activity. So you've got that constant thinking about, and that's probably what Netflix are doing. If you look at all their investment, they are going into studio, the studio that they bought in Korea, which just got Squid Games and all the Korean things that you can see now. Right. It's fantastic for them. It just opened up Korea, right? Which is great for them. It's about... You keep on reinventing and finding ways to keep people hooked on your service. And, and that's developing a different mentality, I think, than the sometimes the traditional SaaS, where, where it is what it is. We try to gonna make better, but you, you have an, a feeling of urgency that is created psychologically in the team. So it's actually quite interesting to look at that data. And I think it, we are watching the market at the moment. We are listening to the sales call. We, we don't see a ton of changes. We think that the change may come in Q1 next year, depending That's on right. what's The happening. budgets are being uh, allocated now. And so are yeah. the strategies, right, accordingly. And I think consumers may have a hard time in some countries because of what's happening between Russia and Ukraine and some 100%. of the stuff. So, Europe is getting nailed. Yeah, I think, I think uh, you know, even the Middle East with, with all the long-term breads, so all that thing coming from there, there is lots of there is lots of lots of things coming from Ukraine, lots of things coming from Russia, unfortunately, uh, or fortunately for them, which which we will have to see how it plays out. But yeah, I think for us the most important is to remain flexible, listen to prospects, listen to clients. And 
if we've got the client saying, look, the, the, the future is uncertain, we would rather you know, reduce what we are doing for them and keep going versus trying to push and protect the revenue. It's about, it's about right. adapting, unfortunately. And when, when you're sailing in choppy waters, you have to be ready to trim your sails. Yeah. And that was the big takeaway from the pandemic was this shift in long-term strategy versus short-term tactics. So the importance of being able to recalibrate relationships, even identifying clients that are not a good fit now, but will be later, and also identifying when it's not going well, and then re, you know, re-engineering the expectations to, well, let's look at this from a leading indicator perspective instead of let's look at this as a results-driven exercise, right? So because there is a lot of value in the market signals that you guys are able to pick up. There's a lot of valuable customer feedback that you should be able to capture and provide as a service. Even if the result is not revenue, now, hey, Mr. Customer, Mr. Client, here is the actual market condition. Here's the operating condition that you're up against. You should be extrapolating from this and applying that to your overall strategy. Yeah. But no one exists alone, right? It's a team sport, whether it's hiring a new CRO right, who needs to be effective, but yes, they need to have a team supporting them, or whether it's a new client that you're taking on, it, it's all about calibration, right? That is sort of the, the key, you know, thinking um, for today is, is how do you recalibrate and, and how do you realign your strategy versus, you know, your, your daily tactics? And are you ready to listen to it? You know, I think the last time we spoke, Didi, you and I spoke about, uh, uh, the level of stress that we are both seeing in CRO's office, people getting under a tremendous amount of pressure. Yeah. Can you think straight when you are, you've got people breathing down your neck? You know, you need to sleep, you need those meetings, and you forgot to see the bottom of the iceberg. Yeah. You just look at the top because everybody asks you, why is the top of the iceberg? And you forgot about the bottom. Well, well you're right. There is all the inside, there is all this conversation, but people are sometimes are under pressure and they just brush past it. They don't yeah. care. They just want results. One way or another, give me results. I don't want to know about the process. I want to. I want results, and and that's why because a bit more difficult. That's right, and that also then bleeds over into the negotiations. So what you see is leaders coming in and negotiating more equity, and yeah. actually companies are are shifting gears there too, and they're reserving more of their equity, thirteen to twenty percent more, you know, year over year than what they were doing previously. And the reason for that is because, you know, folks do get burned out. And it's a big problem also for venture firms. They wanna make sure that their CEOs who are at the helm of these, you know, corporations, businesses, emerging companies, that they have the support they need, right? CEO burnout is a, is a major concern for portfolio leaders because they're shouldering a lot of this and they're doing it alone. So, you know, providing that support is something that you guys do as an outsourced service, but it's also part of, you know, the overall, you know, management and board strategy is, is making sure that the CEOs themselves are getting the inputs and the support that they need. Well, Didi, it was fantastic to have you today. Always, always a great conversation, full of insights, full of, full of, full of passion. I love it. If, if anyone wants to pursue the conversation with you, reach out to you, yeah. um, what's, what's the best way to get hold of you, Didi? Uh, LinkedIn is the easiest place, and I'm doing several uh, podcasts. I've got one on fractional leadership, another one on go-to-market compensation. Would love to there see you there. And yeah, always, always interested in insights. So send me any reports, link in with me. I, I always love to chat. Well, thank you so much for your insight, and, and thanks for coming on today. Thanks so much. This was great. 
You've been listening to B2B Revenue Acceleration. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time. This podcast is sponsored by Gong. Gong empowers your entire go-to-market organization by operationalizing your most valuable asset, your customer interactions. Transform your organization into a revenue machine by unlocking reality and helping your people reach their full potential. Get started now at gong.io.